Welcome to the House of Pod, a show where we pull back the curtain on the world of medicine, we answer questions about your health, and we interview great guests. I'm Joe, and I'm not a doctor. And I'm Lizzie. And I'm Kaveh. We're two gastroenterologists. What's a gastroenterologist? You know, the doctors who work with your digestive system. Say what? You know, your liver, your pancreas, your intestines. Where now? Your butt, Joe. It's your butt. Oh. And I'm alive and I want to stay. On today's show, we have Dr. Joseph Sacrin. He's the director of emergency surgery at John Hopkins University. He's a public health researcher. He's a gun violence prevention advocate and activist. And he has a very personal connection to gun violence. Um, and you'll hear about that story. You'll hear about how he then made that transition to becoming a doctor and a surgeon and eventually an advocate and an activist. It's a pretty impressive story. He's a pretty impressive guy. Um, stay tuned. And as always, please follow us at The House of Pod on Twitter. Email us with any questions, comments, concerns at hopquestions at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show and stay tuned. On today's show, we have Dr. Joseph Sacrin, the Director of Emergency Surgery at John Hopkins University. He's the founder of This Is Our Lane. He's a gifted surgeon and he's an advocate whose own life was affected by an act of gun violence. And then he went on to shape his career and the focus of his career based on that. Um, it's really a pleasure to have you on, Dr. Sacrin. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate uh, you and Lizzie uh, taking the time to kind of chat and hear my story and look forward to the discussion. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, can you tell our listeners who don't know maybe about your background, about your story, um, starting with uh, that Friday night in 1994? Yeah, sure. So, you know, um, I grew up right outside of D.C., uh, I'm the son of uh, immigrant parents. We're pro uh, doctors who come from immigrant families here. At least one, two of the three people in this conversation are. Well, I think uh, I think all of us should be at least. But um, look, we're we're all made up of immigrants, right? That's what this country is is based upon. We're all immigrants, and um, I, I say that because it's interesting, you know, thinking about you know, my own kind of like, you know, upbringing and watching my parents and like the work ethic that I saw day in and day out, I think instilled um, a lot uh, on both, you know, my siblings and myself and really kind of shaped how we thought about kind of the next steps in life. And, you know, as Lizzie points out, like my life kind of really changed uh, in 1994. Uh, I was a senior in high school and uh, after attending a high school football game, I ended up um, being nearly killed after I was shot in the throat uh, with a 38 caliber bullet. And, you know, I think that um, as I think back at that night and I think back at, you know, what now I, I look at and I say is, you know, the worst day of my life, um, I realized that the worst day of my life also perhaps turned out to be the most impactful because at the age of 17, you know, you don't realize that you're mortal. 
you don't appreciate the people that you have in your life. And I think most of us don't have any idea what we want to do for the rest of our lives. And so that moment um, really kind of inspired me to uh, go into medicine, to become a trauma surgeon. And now really has me working, you know, at what I call the intersection of medicine, public health, and public policy. Can we go back yeah. a little bit through that um, that night? You're just having a normal seniors night at a football game. For some reason, there's some gun violence or someone shoots into the crowd is my understanding of the scenario. You were hit. You're taken to the operating room pretty quickly afterwards. And I'm assuming that whole experience working with those surgeons, seeing what they did had a big impact on, on your decision in medical school later. But as you were recovering from that, as, as this was, as you were a young 17 year old coming to grips with this insane thing that happened to you, what were your parents' response? What did they tell you at that time? What were, what was your uh, discussions with your family? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting point. And it's one that I've made kind of before. And it took me, frankly, a little while to figure out, uh, you know, as you like look back, you realize how all the different steps kind of got you where you're at. And I'll tell you what I really distinctly remember is, you know, I came out of the hospital and I had a tracheostomy tube. And at that time, at least my whole kind of like perception of like tracheostomy tubes were these like you know older individuals that you saw in those commercials and like they could you know they're talking with essentially their fake robotic <laughs> and it was like frightening and it was scary and so I come out of the hospital and I here I am you know thankfully I had survived but I still have this tracheostomy tube I got these beet red scars up and down my neck and uh one day I I distinctly remember when it all kind of changed I was just kind of looking at myself in the uh, restroom mirror. And what I didn't realize is my father was standing in the corner. And I think, you know, I think my father saw kind of that look of like uh, devastation that I had in my eyes. And he came in and he said like, listen, like, um, like I know what happened to you was terrible, uh, but you really have two options. The first is, and this is, I think, where, like, the tough, like, immigrant, like, family law comes in, is, like, you can feel sorry for yourself, right? Or the second is you can, like, take this horrible um, experience and try to impact the lives of other people. And it was at that moment that I think I realized that I've been given this second chance. And how do you take the second chance and turn it into something positive? Where are your parents from? So my mom was born in Lebanon, um, but she grew up in Israel, and my dad was born uh, in uh, in Israel, and they came to the States over 40 years ago. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I'm a first-generation uh, Arab-American, um, and I actually, interestingly enough, went back, and I lived in Israel for uh, a little while uh, during medical school, which was an amazing experience and a whole different a whole different podcast. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, they really, you know, didn't have anything. And, uh, my dad's aerodynamic space engineer and my mom's a teacher. And I think it was, you know, kind of that, like, you know, work ethic and that grit that we see in so many of our immigrant families, um, that really allow us to, 
uh, kind of be the best version of ourselves possible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, hearing about the family's perspective, I think is really an interesting take on gun violence. You know, you've talked about this yourself. You've talked, I've heard you speaking about um, what's been referred to as the second victim. And I think after a gun shooting, there's multiple victims, not just the unfortunate person who gets shot, but the family of that person. And then the people who take care of that person, there's all these other people that are affected by gun violence, not just the person who gets shot as in your case. And it sounds like you had a really a supportive and amazing family, but you also probably have to see a lot of that in your work, right? I'm assuming that's probably a big part of your job is talking to families. And that must be one of the toughest parts of the job. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is. Uh, look, um, you know, I think, I think as we think about us as like healthcare workers, right, as people on the front line, um, we always have to be the ones that are like, okay, like for so many years, like the strongest, like we have to like put our emotions aside as we try to provide, you know, one life-saving decision after the other. And that's understandable. And I mean, I think all of us as clinicians can appreciate that. Um, but I think what we have to recognize and be comfortable recognizing is we're also human, you know? And so when you have uh, a 17 year old die in your operating room or in, in the trauma bay or in the ICU um, to pretend that in no way, impacts how you feel or how you behave or how you deal with it, I think is just a false, you know, narrative, a false sense of security. And it really doesn't provide you with the opportunity um, to understand that experience from kind of an emotional perspective, which I think, you know, it, it, we all have and we just deal with it in different ways. And and I think it's normal that we deal with it in different ways. I mean, if you think about grief, not everyone deals with grief in the same way. Um, but I think we have to deal with it. And so that's where kind of the second victim piece, and I didn't coin that term, just to be completely um, transparent. That that was a term I frankly first heard Dr. Albert Wu um, discuss and use. And he's written some stuff about that. But the point is, is like, like you just said, it's not just the person that's, that died in front of you but it's also like you the team and so how do you how do you approach that how do you address it yeah yeah no i mean um i think having that nurturing quality as a trauma surgeon where you have no idea what you're going to say to the people on the other side i can only imagine that your personal experience getting shot really helped uh, inform those kind of terrible conversations um and and sometimes probably really hopeful, you know, uplifting conversations as well. But um, just as far as getting this whole trauma to you and your personal experience in 1994, you know, just thinking about it, that was before we used terms like gun violence in America, like the epidemic of gun violence in America, right? Like Columbine, I think was 1999. I remember Sandy Hook vividly in 2012. And now, un unfortunately, and, and tragically, it's, um, it's just, I've lost the dates to many others because it's so common now. Um, so in 1994, it wasn't 
this thing that happened routinely. So first of all, I'm surprised your parents didn't yank you out of this country right away. <laughs> but second of all, I mean, that's what I was, uh, thought you were going to talk about when you, you talked about your dad looking at you. I was like, oh my God, he probably just wanted to get you on a plane. But um, I'm sure that helped get you into advocacy. Um, when you were shot, it wasn't um, something that we needed to talk about as far as policy and advocacy. And, and did that help um, lead you to where you are now today with uh, things like this is our lane and gun violence advocacy? Yeah, so it's a really good question. And I, when I look back at that moment, you're right, we weren't talking about these things in 1994. But I don't think it's because we didn't need to talk about it. I think it's because it was unpopular to talk about it. It was uncomfortable to talk about it. It was uh, inappropriate to talk about it. You know, how yeah. dare you talk about, you know, firearms or guns being part of this public health, you know, problem that we are facing in communities all across America. and. There's also something else that was different at the time where we didn't have the social media platforms that we have these days. Yeah. So say you wanted to talk about it, how do you get your message out there? Do you call a reporter? Do you, I mean, what, what do you do as a 17-year-old you know, high school student? I think though, back to your question, because it's such, a, such an important question. I never thought about going down the policy or the advocacy route, to be honest with you. Like when I initially got into medicine, my whole goal, my entire goal actually, was to be able to give someone else in my situation the same second chance that I was given. That was, that was the, the primary goal. And I thought to myself, okay, if I'm able to give other people that same second chance, then I've made it. I've succeeded. And don't get me wrong. It's very gratifying when you're able to do that. Um, but the reality is, is despite how excellent our training may be, you know, despite all of the resources and the systems we have in place, um, the best way to treat these type of injuries is to prevent them from ever happening. And that's when I started to really think about how do we work beyond simply the trauma center or the operating room. And just like one like final point about your question, uh, it really, I think, all came together in 2011, right before Sandy Hook for me. And I was at the University of Pennsylvania. I was a, a trauma surgical critical care fellow there. And we had this program where we bring in high school students from um, resource poor areas uh, throughout the Philadelphia community. And we would give them a tour of the trauma center and then I would talk to them about gun violence. And the first time I did this, um, you know, like these are like 14, 15 year olds. So we're like, we give them the tour, we get them to this room. We're like, we're chatting with them. I haven't told them my story yet. So they don't know what I've been through. And here I am, you know, even like as an Arab American, right? I mean, I'm just, to them, I look like this white guy in a white coat um, and they don't know my story. And so then I decided to kind of tell them my story about like 10 minutes into it because I felt like I needed something to grab their attention because, you know, they're kind of paying attention, but not really. 
And when I told them the story, all of a sudden, all of their eyeballs faced me. And it was a reaction that I had never seen before and one that I wasn't expecting. And I think, honestly, Lizzie, what it taught me was I went from being this doctor in a white coat to someone that could relate to what these kids have been experiencing day in and day out. And that's what was so special, I think, about that moment, because that moment made me understand the importance of public narrative and the ability of like whatever your purpose is in life, right, whether it's reducing farm injury or something else, in order to go from that value to like action, it's done through emotion. It's done through being able to tell your story. You know, it's what Marshall Gans, who's probably the world leader in public narrative at the Kennedy School talks about, and so many other people highlight is like that like ability for us to be able to change the hearts and minds of people is not through data. Data is important. And as researchers and scientists, we're so focused on the data, but the data doesn't inspire people. It doesn't move people. And so it was kind of a real aha moment for me and made me understand the importance of, of, of narrative and how it can be used as uh, a tool. Yeah. You saw the power in your story and you, you know, I'm sure that, if you could inspire these people, you know, young kids who probably have no attention span to listen to you, I'm sure that yeah. helps teach you that you could probably inspire and grab the attention of people across the world with this issue. Well, that's exactly right. Because I always thought, like, well, who would care about, like, my story, you know? Like, why would right. anyone care about it? Well, it turns yeah. out a lot of other people have not exactly the same experience, but a similar experience. The transition that you made to emergency surgery, that makes perfect sense. And it seems to me obvious that you would have that transition to advocacy like you have because, I mean, who else could do it but you? I mean, if, if, if not for you, you're really at that intersection of experience, expertise, and being able to relate to people. Those are all sort of factors that, that tie in and it has to be someone in your position. But it's interesting because, you know, nowadays it's not uncommon for doctors to take what some may view as a political stance. We don't see ourselves necessarily as politicians, but it's oftentimes, I think in the past, it was harder for doctors to feel like they could take a stance that was at least deemed by others as political. So when you started making, um, starting being an advocate for uh, reasonable gun control or talking about safety you know, when you started doing that, it wasn't totally commonplace. I mean, it seems like there wasn't as many people doing it as there is now. Is that your sense you're, of it too? You're 100% correct. And it was a very much, um, people were very nervous. And I, I think they were, they were especially very nervous around me because if you take someone else, say like, you know, one of you, right, and you decide to talk about it, they may not have a problem telling you, listen, like, you know, slow your roll, like, we can't be discussing it in this way, but they had a harder time doing that with me because mm -hmm. I had actually survived, you know, yeah, shot in the throat. So it was very personal to me. So, so it's a lot harder for someone to dismiss that thought when it comes from me, which again is the power of narrative. It's not because I'm special or better than anyone else, but 
I think just kind of human nature, like, you know, we all have empathy for other people and we say, man, like this person really suffered and like really understands like why this issue is important. I mean, along the lines of data and numbers, why, why don't we have great numbers on study and studies on gun violence? You know, it seems like whenever there's research going on, it, there's roadblocks. And, and why is that? Yeah, I mean, I think historically, as you probably know, if you look back, really up until this past year, there was nearly like a 25-year moratorium on federal funding of um, firearm injury prevention research. And that has a lot to do with, you know, the Dickey Amendment that was passed, which, by the way, didn't never said that um, you can't study, uh, you know, firearm injury. It just said you can't promote or advocate um, gun control. And, but that, but the problem that happened at that time, this happened in the mid 90s. And the real problem that happened was, um, along with, you know, that um, piece of legislation, there was uh, $2.6 million that was stripped from the CDC and allocated towards, I want to say, traumatic brain injury research. That number is not like some random number. That is the same amount they had spent the year prior on fire injury prevention research. So what that tells you is like, this was like a message to the CDC that said, hey, you keep doing this, you know, we're going to essentially cause you to go bankrupt. And they were, the leadership, you know, was afraid at the time. In fact, there's a couple of documentaries coming out on that and they've been, they've been public, um, you know, in recent years about that. So that really, you know, put the research piece, at least from a federal funding perspective, to a halt. And when you talk to like in recent years, you know, the CDC versus Congress, like the CDC says, hey, we're happy to study it as long as, you know, Congress appropriates those dollars. And Congress says, oh yeah, they're more than welcome to study it, but up until last year, never appropriated the dollars. So finally, you know, last year we got 25 million, which by the way, is a very small amount of funding considering the proportional impact of firearm injury across the country. But I think there was a um, symbolic kind of importance of that being appropriated that finally after all these years, um, people are starting to realize that this is a public health problem that we can't continue to ignore. And I think, you know, the last thing I'll say about that is I think that this also is a reflection of the change and the paradigm shift we're seeing in our country. So in 2008, when you look at, forget the Republican members right now, when you look at the Democratic members, we had, I think, around, you know, 63 A-rated, right, from the NRA. They had A ratings, 63 members of the Democratic Congress. When you look at 2018, that number is three. So you can see that there's a paradigm shift that's happening in regards to like people that are still willing to support, you know, these type of, you know, policies that are not founded um, in, in evidence and that are simply propaganda. Uh, and yeah, so we've seen that on a variety of different levels. 
So overall, do you feel some sense of hope, increased hope in the coming years? 2020, the year in general, is sort of a miserable year. <laughs> but do you feel that, um, do you feel some hope in, in this regards, this one subject at least? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. Is this um, a problem that's easily solved? No, right? This is a complex health problem. And any complex, you know, public health problem like this requires a multifaceted approach. I will tell you that, you know, we, of course, we want to see action at the federal level. But I think we shouldn't disregard the importance, and I talk about this a lot, of like being engaged at the local and state level. And we know that, like, you know, you look at like 2018, for example, 67 pieces of legislation, gun you know, legislation was passed in states and communities across America. So even though, you know, we haven't seen the type of change we want to see at the federal level, we're seeing it at the local and state level, and that's important. And so how do you, you know, continue this kind of progressive, you know, change that we're seeing? And it's not like we need to dispel this like false narrative that, you know, we're trying to take away people's guns. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to build a system where there's responsible gun ownership. You know, we know that, like, it's not cost effective to simply try to focus on changing human behavior. We have to build a system that allows us to make it less likely for people to be injured. And I think it's, you know, that kind of mindset and that ability to kind of consensus building that will allow us to move forward. Well, maybe 2020 isn't such a wash if uh, we've got trans rights, the dreamers, and now maybe some firearm uh, research and policy. So maybe we don't have to dump 2020. We're learning more and more how important local and state politics, you know, with policing and with firearms now, I'm learning more that, that it is important to get involved in your local community. Yeah, no, look, it, it is. And we've had so many issues um, at, in 2020 that like, where do we start? But I, I think <laughs> since we're talking about like gun violence and, and, and you brought it up, I, I, I think it would be, you know, I'd be remiss not to mention the fact that like, you know, around systemic racial injustice that we are seeing in this country, um, it bleeds into every sector, including healthcare. And, you know, one of the things that I've talked about for so many years is the fact that you know, people focus on mass shootings all the time, right? It gets the media's attention. I understand it, but that's a small portion of what's happening around gun violence in America. And what really frustrates me as a trauma surgeon in a city like Baltimore is there are young black men that are being, you know, slaughtered on our streets every day. And those stories often go untold. And so I think we have um, both kind of an obligation and a responsibility to tell those stories. I mean, yeah. people don't want to hear this, but it wasn't until like suburban white schools started getting shot up that people started to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank and you for course, saying that. It's really important. You know, we agree. I mean, racism, systemic or otherwise, we believe is a public health crisis. And again, we don't want to be political. It's just that when we address these facts, 
sometimes people change the narrative so it seems like we are. But we don't, I don't think from a medical or scientific perspective, saying facts is inherently political. But that kind of goes into my next question that I want to talk to you about, which is, you know, you have spent time on the internet. You're famous uh, on, on Twitter uh, for 2018, telling the NRA that this is our lane in reference to them telling doctors to stay out of the gun control issue. And, you know, we're on line all the time. I'm on Twitter all the time. I see the ghouls that are on the internet and we run to a lot of common myths about guns and what people want with gun controls. We run into a lot of very common arguments. My first question, I guess, would be on the subject, what's the most common arguments uh, that you find online about against gun control and what are your responses to them? Yeah, it, it's, it's a really, it's a really great um, uh, question. And I think, you know, it's been interesting to see uh, all the stuff that takes place online. As, as you allude to, I, I often will, um, you know, voice my opinion uh, online but all of that being said, I actually think, you know, platforms like Twitter, for example, um, are a really uh, not a useful platform to really have a dialogue, right? Um, and a lot of times people will say all sorts of things and I actually often will not respond because I, I, I just don't feel like it's going to actually, you know, be a fruitful very mature of you, very sophisticated of you to not take the debate like I do every single time. <laughs> so many mindless arguments. Yeah. But like back to your like question. So like, I'll tell you like, um, one of the things as just innately as humans, we often talk to people that think like us, right. Or that have our views. And, and what I've tried to do actually, um, in addition to talking to those individuals, because those individuals are typically, it's a self-select group that show up, right, to your talks or whatever. When I go to places like Oklahoma or Kansas or like Waco, right, where I get like a bunch of people in the audience that are gun owners, like I love having those conversations. And let me tell you what I found. Like I get gun owners that will come up to me uh, at the end of a talk and say, you know, Joe, like we agree with the majority of what you're saying. So the, the first point I want to make is that as Americans, like we have actually a lot more in common than we have that divides us, right? And so building off that commonality and that consensus that unites us as, you know, a group of individuals, I think is so important because if you take the time to actually listen to someone else, you'll really realize and understand that you're not so different specifically related to like some of the things that are brought up people say well you know um i could take a knife and i could kill someone with a knife right um which is a true statement <laughs> but the reality is is that if you have you know uh, an automatic weapon uh with you know a 30 round clip in it or whatever you want to say the amount of injury and death that you can potentially cause is a lot greater than if you simply had a knife. Yeah. And we have seen that in situations like some of these Walmart shootings 
And, you know, you look at like Las Vegas. I mean, there's, I think like Lizzie said, like we've started to lose track of all the different dates and events because there are so many. Yeah. Yeah. You look at the amount of damage and destruction that you can do in such a short amount of time, it's not the same. Right. So that continues to be, you know, a very common uh, argument that people try to use. There's the one that really bothers me is the one I hear a lot. They're always like, well, look at Chicago. Chicago has the toughest gun laws of any state and the gun violence there is worse than any place. I mean, that argument has been torn apart multiple times. Uh, there's, there's a lot of different approaches you could take to take that argument down, but it still pops up. It's still there. And I don't even know if the people who say it believe it anymore, if they just use it to, to enrage people on the other side of the issue. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And I think the only thing you need to say about that is, look, we, we, you know, we don't, we, our states are porous, right? So like people come in and, and go out and, you know, there is a significant portion of, of those crime guns that are brought in. Right. So again, this is why we need federal legislation, state, you know, what's happening at, at the state level and the local level is important, but we shouldn't forget that, you know, in order to really have a comprehensive approach, um, we also have to push for federal legislation to deal with some of the problems that you're talking about. Yeah. Do you, do you think that the, um, that there are similarities between the arguments about second amendment, right to bear arms, guns, you can't control me. This is America. Do you think there's similarity between that argument and the mask argument of, I don't need to wear a mask. Uh, this is America. I could do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Listen, I, here's, here's what I'll say. I'm not like a constitutional expert or a law yeah. expert. Um, but, but here's what I'll tell you is, uh, in America, um, you know, we like our freedom and we like to have autonomy. And I think part of, um, you know, how I think about this is how do you balance, right, the right to bear arms with also the right for members of the community to live in a state where they are not fearful they're going to be gunned down on their way home from school. Right. And this is where that whole personal responsibility, right, um, that responsibility of having responsible gun owners comes into play. And I don't think that, you know, you can make an argument and say that someone's right to bear arms is greater than someone's right to live. Liberty and the pursuit of happiness versus the right yeah. to bear arms. That, that it is a balance, right? And it doesn't seem like people appreciate that balance. Yeah. So. And, the, and the Supreme Court has, has said this before, even conservative judges where, you know, having, you know, the um, right to bear arms doesn't mean uh, we don't have responsible gun ownership. So uh, I think that people use that as, as, a, as a tactic to to not really talk about the issue and, and to divert, um, you know, the commonality that exists among so many of us. And yeah. Yeah. And no, I think you're right. There's constantly people trying to change the narrative of these things. Um, and thank you so much for always trying to refocus 
the the story on on what's really happening. Um, lastly, do you have any recommendations for people who want to do something from a small a small to large levels? What can people do if they do care about gun control? Yeah. So look, uh, I think it's a, I think it's a couple things. Number one is um, there are plenty of resources out there to educate yourself on the issue. I always find that knowledge is power. And, you know, there's, I'm not going to start mentioning them because then someone will be, you know, sensitive that I didn't mention their organization. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of gun violence prevention groups that have put together incredible packets of information and resources that you can easily find. That's number one. So after you've educated yourself, right, um, I think personally one of the best ways to initially get involved is try to get involved locally within your own communities. I mean, it could be as like, you know, simple as like, you know, something within your own PTA board or attending, you know, a council meeting or joining, you know, whatever, one of the GVP chapters or groups. There's so many of those different kind of local efforts that are so impactful. I mean, I think everyone will recognize the fact that when you see those red shirts, right, from Mom's Demand show up at the state capitals in, you know, one state after the other, right? I mean, it's pretty powerful. People know. They don't have to like, oh, who is that? They know, I mean, who those people are and yeah. what they're standing for. So, you know, knowledge, lo being locally involved. And then, you know, I think for each of us, we have um, a different kind of narrative as to why we're involved in this issue. And I think one of the best things I've seen is like teaming up with other people. That's one of the things that I think we need to work on a lot is to break down the silos that exist in communities and across the nation to really work hand in hand and to um, have like one common narrative that gives us one strong voice. And that's something that I think we can do a better job at as a, as a community interested in uh, reducing uh, farm-related death and injury in America. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your story with us. It's an amazing one. And thank you for all the work that you do, um, both in the operating room and in the emergency rooms and, you know, uh, on our TV sets when you, we see you uh, mm -hmm. giving very reasonable, rational, scientific arguments uh, for gun control. So thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me, and uh, I'm really excited uh, to see uh, your podcast continue to progress and uh, look forward to, to listening to some of your other incredible guests. So thanks for, for the opportunity. Thank you, man. All right, Liz, I'll talk to you later. Yeah, sorry, Lizzie. The opinions on this podcast are broadcasted for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent the opinions of our employers. These opinions are not intended as a diagnosis, treatment, or as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a local physician or other healthcare professional for your specific healthcare and or medical needs or concerns.